right, so this week uh, we're carrying on. Last week we kind of did an introduction to the idea of the heart. We talked about what is the heart and what the heart of, of Jesus looked like. We just did a very brief overview of Jesus' heart. Today we're going to get a lot deeper into it. Again, I have way more content than we can get through this morning. That's why the uh, Overflow podcast becomes so important as we're going through this series. But So if you've got your notebook out, let's uh, start filling them out. The first thing is the big idea for today, and that is this. The pure heart of Christ loved the Father and others with no expectation of reciprocity. The pure heart of Christ loved the Father and others with no expectation of reciprocity. So I'm going to write it in here too. And our identity statement is that Jesus is not only the king of heaven, he is the king of my heart. So this is an identity. This is something that God is making true in me. This is who I am. He is the king of my heart. So Jesus is not only the king of heaven, he is the king of my heart. Okay, so that's the big idea and the identity statement. And we'll post those Online, we're also. I've also been posting, you know, a screen, a, an iPhone screensaver picture of the identity statement, and you can see. I saw uh, Becky Manning did this, so I did it too. You take that and put it on your phone as your screensaver wallpaper, whatever you call that nowadays. That way, you can be reminded of that all throughout the course of this week. That's why we make it so you can put it on your phone and remind yourself of it. And then if you collect all of them, just keep an album on your phone of every identity statement throughout the course of this series and keep just rolling through them, reminding yourself of these truths of what God is doing in us. Now, here are the key verses. Um, We're going to put this up on the screen. I'm going to talk over it, but we'll leave it up here uh, for a little while while I get into the introduction of it. That way you can start writing these down. Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. Matthew 5, 8, there's a lot of them. Deuteronomy 7, 9. James 1, verse 27. John 13, 10. John 15, verse 2 and 3. Romans 5, 8. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. And Romans 8, 38 and 39. And we'll get through all of those this morning. We'll leave that slide up there for just a few minutes so you can get them written down. All right, so we're talking now about the pure heart of Christ, and we just kind of got a little bit into that last week, and uh, we've got a lot of of material to cover today to really get a picture of it. So so, uh, try to do your best to track with me, to stick with me for these moments. So uh, we're familiar with the idea, we're familiar with the concept, because we've heard it, pure in heart. I just read it in Matthew chapter 5 verse 8, but it also is something that that is throughout the Old Testament. We're familiar, I think, with the passages of Scripture like Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4, where it says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? This was in our Bible reading this last week. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So if you want to be in God's presence, you have to have clean hands and a pure heart. And of course, what we just read in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus' own words, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So God said it and Jesus confirmed it. If you want to see God, you have to have a pure heart. So I guess that's awesome. I'm screwed. 
when do I get to be in God's presence? Right? Doesn't it feel that way? You hear these ideas? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, but my heart's not pure, so what do, what do we do with that? See, sometimes the motives, desires, and affections of my heart aren't pure. Sometimes the things I do and the decisions I make are selfish. I'm sure I'm the only one that's like this in this room, but sometimes I do what I want to do because I want to do it regardless of how it's going to affect others. You've probably never had ulterior motives. I'm not admitting that I have had ulterior motives, but that's something that some people have. You probably don't obsess or focus about something other than God. In fact, I'm sure that you're the kind of person that spends most of your day with your feet, you know, in, in the uh, crisscross applesauce position and your hands outstretched and you're m meditating all day long on God and his glory and you don't even need to eat food anymore because you've just been fasting for years and, and you are constantly in God's presence. But in case you're like the rest of us or me, um, we need to talk about our hearts. Last week we talked about the motives of our hearts and our, the motives of our hearts have been deformed. The story our hearts are telling us is deceitful and more often than we'd like to admit, we don't do the things that God desires of us. Because of the nature of our hearts, it's challenging for us to imagine then anyone, even Jesus, having a pure heart. We place our fallen deficiencies on God's perfect son, and we judge Jesus based on our flawed motives. We're skeptical of Jesus because of our desires. We're skeptical of Jesus because of our desires. We don't trust Jesus because of our wandering affections. Wandering, W-A-N-D-E-R-I-N-G. We don't trust Jesus because of our wandering affections and because what we know is corrupt, we simply cannot imagine anyone ever existing differently than ourselves. So we're skeptical of Jesus because of our desires. For example, we know in principle that God is always faithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Psalm 119 verse 90, you, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. He cannot be unfaithful. We understand this in a logical sense. Because his nature is to be faithful, it is literally impossible for him to be anything but faithful. We, on the other hand, have been the givers and receivers of the lack of faithfulness. We know what it feels like to be unfaithful to a friend, a church, a family member, or a boss. We know what it feels like when someone is unfaithful to us. All that we know of faithfulness is the corrupt version of faithfulness, so we can't imagine a God who is actually always faithful, a God for whom it is impossible to be unfaithful. But we cannot allow our limited understanding to be the measuring stick 
for God's character. Similarly, we cannot allow our limited experience to be the measuring stick for God's character. This also applies for Jesus. Just because we couldn't have done it doesn't make it impossible for Christ. So then, what does it mean to have a pure heart? What does it mean to be pure in heart? We're skeptical even of the word pure because of all of the things in our culture and our society that claim to be pure that we know aren't 100% pure, right? I mean, so there's, there's nothing that we know of that's 100% pure, completely free of impurities. Everything seems to have a little bit of impurity in it. And of course, we're sold things all the time that are pure, and then you get on the, you know, the back, it's pure milk, and then you read the labels, but then there's a lot more than milk in there. So purity isn't even pure anymore. But what is pure when it comes to this idea in Scripture? The Greek word for pure is katharos, cathartic, katharos. It means pure what it means, in case you didn't know. We'll just leave it at that. No, I'm kidding. All right, so here's, uh, there should be a definition coming up on the screen for you. Pure, in a physical sense, it means to be purified by fire. So you're going to see that this has more to do just with than the concept of purity, but it has to do with the process of becoming pure. So it means to be purified by fire, it can also refer to a vine that has been cleansed by the process of pruning, and it's ready to bear fruit. Ethically, it means to be free from corrupt desire, free from sin and guilt, to be blameless, innocent, or unstained with the guilt of anything. That's what it means to be pure. We find this same word that Jesus used in Matthew 5.8 and James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained or unpolluted by the world. At the beginning of Jesus' teaching on the night of his betrayal, we also get the same word in two different uses that really, I think, paints a holistic understanding of what pure really means. John chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said, who, uh, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. That word for clean is the word for pure. In John chapter 15, verse 2 and 3, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that word right there, prunes, is pure, purify. I think it's kathiros or kathiros or something like that. Um, I have it written somewhere. But... Uh, prunes it, he makes it pure so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean, that's the word again, pure. You are already pure because of the word which I have spoken to you. So Jesus' word spoken to us makes us pure. Yeah, uh, kathiro, K-A-T-H-A-I-R-O is the word for prunes. 
So it means to cleanse or to uh, make pure. It means, that word literally means to cut off the useless shoots from trees and vines. We'll get into that in just a second. So the pure heart is not only to be cleansed of the bad things, which is where we stop, I think, most of the time with purity. We stop with the idea that purity is to cleanse my heart of the sin, right? Of the guilt, of the shame, of the bad things. Purity is to get rid of all of the bad and filth from our lives. That's half of the idea of purity. The other half also means this. It means to be free of anything that takes energy away from letting God flow through, through our lives. So it's not just getting rid of the bad things that we're going to discover. It actually means getting rid of some good things because there's a more important thing. Now let's talk about fruit trees. You knew it had to go there as soon as we started talking about pruning and fruit and my obsession with fruit trees. Uh, We cannot not go there when we're talking about the idea of pruning. So I know you've heard some of this before because I've said some of this before, but... uh, uh, we also, I know that you need to hear me say something 25 times before it starts to sick. So we're going to talk about pruning at least 23 more times so that you really get the idea of it. But um, let's talk about pruning fruit trees. To get good fruit, you have to prune fruit trees. All healthy trees grow. If you have a tree, it's growing. If it's not growing, there's something wrong. It's not healthy. There is something going on that is keeping this tree from, from being healthy. For instance, you might have a tree in a pot, and the pot is keeping the roots from growing out deeper into the soil to get more nutrition, and so that keeps the tree from growing to its full size, and so there's something actually wrong with the tree. It's not growing like it should be because it doesn't have the nutrition it needs. So this is how a tree works. Hopefully you know some of this. A tree sucks in water and nutrients from the soil through its roots, and then when you combine that with what the leaves soak in through the sun coming down from above, the, the tree produces sap, and that, that process and the sun and all of it has to do with how the sap flows through the tree. The sap flows, and what we, we said a few weeks ago was called the cambium layer, which is between the bark and the wood. And if you go around a tree, and you can try this on a branch if you want, cut all of the bark off, of uh, just make a circle and you cut the bark off of that branch, the branch will die because the sap cannot flow through the branch any longer. So the, the sap flows up the tree from the ground and then out through the branches where it then flows into the fruit. But the tree is also constantly at the same time trying to grow up towards the sun. It's almost as if the light of the sun is pulling the tree towards the sun. And so it puts on what are called suckers every year. And I've complained about this several times, these suckers that we have growing on our tree. They grow three or, three or four feet long every year. I brought, brought some in last week. Whips is what some, some people call them. It was this long. In one year, our tree will put on thousands of suckers this long every single year. And if you let them go every year, eventually they overtake the entire tree. So if you drive through the country and you see some old fruit trees, you'll see that they've never been pruned and there's something that happens to them. It diverts energy from the tree into vertical growth and away from fruit growth. So you get small, tart, useless fruit. 
if you get any fruit at all. So every winter we go through the fruit trees and we cut those off and you're supposed to do it again in the middle of the summer as well if you have the time to do that. I haven't yet had that time. So we just do it in the winter. But I've noticed something. Every time I'm doing this pruning, every time I'm, I'm doing the pruning in the winter time, it feels like I'm taking off too much. It feels like you're cutting off too much of the tree. It feels like you're making a mistake and that what you're doing to the tree is going to hurt the tree. But then every year as we progress through the spring and the summer and now as the trees have leafed out and bloomed and they're full, I see that once again, I was not aggressive enough with my pruning. It's counterintuitive, but if you want good fruit, it's what you have to do. Now, let's look at the same idea applied, the same principle applied to our hearts. Yeah, yeah, if you got the, the devil-possessed elk, then they come in and they just keep eating your trees down to the nub every year. Yeah, we're going to have good roots, though. Some year we're going to put on 20 feet of growth and it'll get over their heads. But All right, so let's look at it now in our hearts. Being pure in heart does have to do with having a clean, sin-free, and not selfish heart. We know that clearly, but that's only half of the story. The other half we neglect. And I think we neglect it, for one, because it's painful. Jesus said, every branch, every branch that bears fruit, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Talking about a branch that is already bearing fruit. So there's already fruit on this branch, and every branch that bears fruit, he cleanses, he purifies, he prunes, he makes it more pure so that it may bear more fruit. So so if you're bearing fruit, then God will continue to go about this process of pruning and cleansing and purifying you so that you can produce more fruit. These things that are growing look like they're alive. In fact, they are alive. These things that are growing, if you let them go, eventually they could grow and produce fruit. Maybe. But then if you let too many of them grow, then you start running the risk of having other problems like too much fruit weight on the branches. And we experienced that a few years ago with our prune tree where there was just too much fruit. I didn't prune it enough. And the tree split in half because of the weight of the fruit. So this means that there are things growing in our lives that God has to cut out so that we can produce his fruit. There are growing things, things that are alive in our life, that if you look at them, they look good because they're alive, that God is going to have to cut out of our lives so that we can produce more of his fruit, the fruit he designed us to do. It feels wrong. It feels unintuitive, but bearing fruit means saying no to good things to make more room for 
the great things, the right things, the God things. We can see this in Jesus' ministry. The fruit of Jesus' ministry is us, the church. We are the fruit of Jesus' ministry. So not only was Jesus pure of heart in the sin-free sense, Jesus was pure of heart in the no-selfish ambition sense as well. His only earthly ambition was to fulfill the mission of the, that the Father sent him to accomplish. We covered that last week. We'll get a little bit more of that today. But if you look at Jesus and the ministry that, you, that he had here on earth, you see that he could have been successful at a lot of things. He could have had a successful career in carpentry, but he didn't. His father, his earthly father, Joseph, was a carpenter, and he, he undoubtedly spent time growing up and learning the family business of carpentry. And he could have done that throughout his life and been a carpenter, but he didn't. As we look at his ministry, we see that he could have had a great impact in feeding the poor. He fed the 5,000, then he fed the 4,000, then he fed, you know, he fed people as a, as a part of his ministry, and that could have become, if he chose, a good thing, a, 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 a shoot, a sprout that grew up off of his ministry that could grow up and take over the whole thing. He could have let that become the focus of his ministry, but he didn't. He also could have been the revolutionary that all the people wanted him to be, and he could have gone and taken back the throne for himself. He was the king. He's the rightful heir to that throne. He could have gone and taken it back. Still, he didn't. Why? Because there was a more important fruit that God wanted to produce through his life. So his laser-like focus on the mission that God the Father had given him and his refusal then to let anything grow in his life that wasn't related to that mission, the fruit of his ministry was nothing short of revolutionary. Billions and billions of people believed. Of course, it helps if you die and come back to life too. So, but we'll just kind of look past that for now. When we think of Jesus' heart as being pure, we tend to just gravitate towards the one idea that Jesus' heart was free from sin. Jesus' heart was, was free from wrong things. But his heart wasn't just free from sin, his heart was also free from selfish ambition. So to be pure in heart then means to be free of sinful desires and selfish desires. Sinful desires keep us from loving the Father, selfish desires keep us from loving others. Sin and selfishness, these are the matters of the heart. Let's stop for a minute. I can see I'm uh, putting a lot on you. What, uh, what might be some examples of good things that God might have to cut out of our lives. Yeah, I'm pretty harsh on social media, but it's amoral, it's not immoral. Now we could argue about that if you want, but I could make an argument probably both ways. Um, but but there's a, there are goods, for instance, I like going on uh, Facebook. Some of the only time I enjoy going on Facebook anymore is on holidays. 
Mother's Day, Easter, those kinds of days, because then people are still posting pictures of their families and <laughs> the things that I originally enjoyed Facebook for. And I kind of avoid it now most of the other time when people are posting politics and rants and soapboxes and complaints and all of those things. But so yeah, it can get out of balance. So there are probably some other good things that we could think of, but I just encourage you to spend some time thinking about that maybe in your sermon reflection later today. What, what might be a good thing that God wants to cut out of my life and let God just speak to you? And maybe he'll speak that to your heart as we continue on this morning. So that's purity. That's the pure heart of Jesus. But we also, if we're going to understand Jesus' heart, we have to see the loving heart of Jesus. So Jesus' heart was pure from sin and it was pure from selfish ambition, but Jesus' heart was also all love. It was love. Jesus' heart was love. God's heart is love. God's love for us has never been the kind of love that we experience between one another. God's love for us has never been love as love has been defined by our society and our culture. From the beginning until now, God has never offered his love to us on the basis of reciprocity. Yes, he wants us to choose to love him. But never once has he withheld his love for us in an attempt to get us to love him back. God wants us to choose to love him, but he never withholds his love to manipulate us to love him. That's not how God works. He created us out of love. He created us to enjoy a relationship with himself. He even created an entire world for us to enjoy and then he told us how to live in this world the right way. In a way that we would be able to continue to walk in relationship with him in the cool of the garden. And then, when we broke the rules of his perfect world, he reached out to us to reconcile the relationship with us. And then throughout the Old Testament, through the whole Old Testament story, we see God making covenants to reestablish ways in his people to have a thriving relationship with him and to experience his tangible presence in their midst. Because his heart is love. But then we, we can say we because we do the same thing that the Israelites did. We consistently chose to do things our own way. Time and time and time and time again, the people of God so, the people that God so desperately wanted to be His people would then go against the very commitments they made to God as a part of the covenantal relationship with God to have relationship and presence in their midst. They would go against these commitments over and over and over and over again. In fact, we were just talking this last week that the people give God a lot of flack in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament narrative, it looks like God is very harsh and judgmental. But when you really read the story, when you look at it through the right lens, you see that that's not really the case at all. In fact, you look and you see that God was incredibly gracious and loving. He didn't just give the Israelites a second chance. He gave them chance after chance after chance after chance, after chance, after chance. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ironically enough, 
as contractual as we treat our relationship with God, never once has he treated us contractually. Had it been a contract, as soon as the Israelites broke the terms, God could have abandoned them all together. He could have destroyed them all together, but he didn't. He kept coming back, and he kept seeking reconciliation. And when the people violated the terms of the contract, God could have destroyed them, but he didn't. He kept sending leaders and prophets to try to bring the people, to lead the people back to himself. The Old Testament isn't a story of God's harsh judgment. It's a story of God's undying love. And we, in a similar manner, have done the same. After we have spurned all of his advances towards us, Jesus sent his, or God sent his son Jesus into the world to show the full extent of his love. John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Some translations say he showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus would then, at this point in the story, and us, he would love his disciples and us to the point of a cruel death, the full extent of his love. I can't say this for certain, but I doubt that throughout human history anyone has ever died to keep a contract. I mean, you've got your contract that you sign for your smartphone and, and for all the other agreements that you make. Would you die for one of those contracts? You've entered into an agreement with the company. Would you die to keep that contract? If it came down to a point where you had to choose between your life and keeping your cell phone contract, what would you do? Keep your life. Contracts don't drive people to sacrifice their lives. Contracts don't drive fathers to sacrifice their sons. Only love can do that. Love is the only thing that can lead someone to the point of laying down their own life to save another. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. This is what love is. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That's covenantal love. While we were still sinners, before we had done anything to earn his approval, while sin was in our hearts and while we were rebelling against God, Jesus died for us. When sin was in our hearts, the love Jesus had for us in his heart drove him to the cross for us. That's what love looks like. It sacrifices itself. It lays itself down for others. Not this convoluted thing that we call love today. I want to dig into this just a little bit because we need to make sure we're aware of it. There's a great lie that has wrapped up love. Now, to be honest, labeling Labeling today's love as contractual would actually be an improvement. If we could call love of the world today contractual, that would be better 
than what we experience most of the time in the world. Most of the time, what's praised and portrayed as love in our time is more like mutually taking advantage of one another for our own personal pleasure. Mutually taking advantage of one another for our own personal pleasure. There aren't even contracts involved anymore. Just desire, also known as lust, taking from others to get what it wants. You might be saying, that sounds kind of pessimistic. Sounds like you watch a little bit too much TV. It's not what the rest of us are like. And I'll grant you that I may have seen a few too many episodes of Grey's Anatomy. But it's not just on television. Friendships are this way, Facebook is this way, church is this way. The status quo today is taking advantage of others for our own benefit. Listen to this. We maintain the relationships as long as there is reciprocity. We maintain the relationships as long as there is reciprocity. As long as the other person is, that is meeting my needs greater than or at least equal to the effort I expend in meeting their needs, then everything is fine. But if relational equilibrium is not maintained, I then am justified in abandoning that relationship if the other person hasn't already beaten me to the punch. This is how we treat relationships today. There's no such thing as covenant in relationships today. It's let's keep the balance going, and as long as the balance is good, we'll have a relationship. What might be some, uh, some ways that we treat love as a contract? But this love, this undying, this unconditional agape love, is the love that existed before we were created. And it's the love that will always continue to exist. It's also the love that God has then poured out in abundance on us. It's a love that songwriters and poets have sought to capture the essence of for thousands of years, and still none of them have done it. And even I could argue that you could combine all of their efforts into one picture of God's love, and it still would fall short. This is God's undying love. As is often the case, kingdom love is upside down from the love of this world. More accurately, a more precise statement would be that this love of God is the only right-side-up love that has ever existed. Our love, the love of this world, is the real upside-down, turned-in-on-itself kind of love. We are the ones that took God's love, what God gave us, and then flipped it upside-down on itself. But we don't need to fear, because God's love is stronger than death. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3 says, this is the love that God has lavished on us, right? See what great love the Father has lavished. That's an abundance word. That is a word of just pouring on and pouring on and pouring on and pouring on. It's opening up all of the fire hydrants and letting them fall on you. This is what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. 
So if we're becoming like Christ, if we're becoming like the love of God, the reason the world doesn't know us is because it doesn't know the one who started love. Dear friends, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The love of God is pure, and those who receive it purify themselves because of it. The love of God is pure, and those who receive it purify themselves because of it. So when God asks you to cut something out of your life, We do it because of God's love. When God asks us to confess a sin and to get rid of the thing that's creating distance in our relationship with him, we, we do it gladly. We, we purify ourselves because of God's love. And this love is, is based on God himself. Romans 8, chapter Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39 says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the love God has for us. So today we're wrestling with this question, who is the king of my heart? Who's the king of my heart? Should we start to turn towards the close? I just want to give us some space to start wrestling with that question a little bit. Who's the king of your heart? Who's the king of your heart? of my heart. You might ask the question, how do we know? How do we know who the king of our heart is? Maybe close your eyes for a minute. You know, you'll notice that meditation is a, is a big part of this process, this journey we're on. So spend some time right now as I talk, just letting God search your heart. Who is the king of my heart and how do I know? Let me ask this question. Are the motives of your heart naturally progressing more towards Christ-likeness? I think one of the ways we know is that the, the trend we see in our lives, not that we are perfect in this moment, in our motives, in our desires, but that the trend of our heart is naturally progressing more towards Christ's likeness. Can you look back over your life the last week, the last month, the last year, and see a natural progression in your heart more towards Christ's likeness? Conversely, can you look in your heart and see a trend in the opposite direction, more towards sin and selfishness. 
Is your heart trending towards Christ? Not through, think, think through this as well as your, as your eyes are closed. Not through brute force in our efforts. Not because we worked really hard to transform our heart, but because of the power of the presence of Christ in me. Is my heart naturally trending towards Christ-likeness? Similarly, with our affections, with the love, the things that we love, are the affections of my heart naturally progressing more towards Christ-likeness? Are the affections of your heart naturally trending towards Christ-likeness? Not a superficial affection that I put on when I'm around other believers or when I want to appear to be a Christ follower, but affections that are being transformed within the depths of my heart at all times and in all ways. Are the affections of your heart naturally progressing more towards Christ-likeness? The only way to have a heart like Christ is to let Christ be the king of our hearts. He is truly good where our best understanding of good is flawed. So to have a good heart, we have to turn over the authority of our hearts to its maker. Surrender. We can't be the king of our heart and let God be the king of our heart at the same time. Who is the king of your heart? I'm going to ask the worship team to come with our heads bowed, eyes closed. I just want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the work you're doing in our hearts. I thank you for the visible evidence we have seen this week and in the weeks behind us that you are transforming us more and more into the likeness of your son. I thank you, Father, for the progress. Thank you also for the process. I thank you that you love us along the way, that there is not some future destination, some future status of our hearts where you will finally give us your love, but that you have poured out and lavished your love on us all along the way throughout the entire process, that you are not waiting until our lives measure up and we have started to earn your love, but that you just give it to us freely, and freely we have received it, and so freely we give it. Father, I ask in these final moments that you just continue to reveal to us any area of our hearts, anything in our hearts that is self-serving or sinful, anything that we're holding on to, anything that we are clinging to because we want it there. We know you don't want it there, but we want it there, and we have yet to, re- to lay it down. We refuse to let go, to, 
to, we continue to hold on to this thing because it's more important to us than you. Father, bring to light any of those things in our hearts, whether it's a sin or whether it's a selfish ambition. And I ask, Father, that you help us now in these moments to lay it down once and for all. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 2. My favorite passage in all of Scripture, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is our King.